You're listening to the Ferocious Teachers Podcast, a listening experience for educators who are dedicated to the improvement of education and ourselves. I'm Rachel Bell, founder and facilitator of Ferocious Teachers. Visit us at ferociousteachers.com. Let's stop focusing on what education has been and open our minds to what education can be. Here we go. Have you ever had any positive experiences with leadership? <laughs> Not many. Um, <laughs> I was fortunate that my first principal, who the first principal of my first job, um, I I was I, I I just I was I was finishing up my certification at DePaul. Um, I was I was sending out you know, and I, I think I thought I was sending out resume after resume to try to land a job. I was getting rejected left and right. And then in August, on a on a Friday in August, um, I got this I got this message that this principal on the south side of Chicago was in need of a Spanish teacher, and he had my resume, and he had a slot open at two thirty for an interview. And so I, I I hop on the green line, I hop on the red line, I hop on the 95 West bus, and I wind up at 95th and Troop Street. And this guy is the southern, the southern genteel guy, and he he's just like, look, I need a man, I need a man of color, and you're it. And I'm like, I don't know Spanish. I mean, I'll be willing to learn it, but like, I'm gonna be about an hour ahead of the kids. Um, he goes, I don't care. You fit the bill, you'll be fine. And I just, I needed a job. Um, he took such, it was now looking back on it, I can't believe that he would take such a chance on such an unknown quantity like me. Like that's educationally dangerous. Um, but he did. And I was so indebted. I was there every morning at like 5.45 and he was there at 5.45 running the early morning before care, pouring like orange juice for these little kids. Um, he, I was stayed late until like seven o'clock. He was there, uh, you know, he, there was a little motel across the street from the school and that's where he crashed. And then on the weekends he would go back to Georgia. Um, it, I, I was so inspired by that servant leadership that he did not see himself as a boss as much as he did as a servant of the kids, a servant of us, a servant of the community. And he just, and I would tell him, like, I would tell him every week, I suck. Like, I just, I know you're going to fire me within a couple of days. Just give me some notice so I can clear off my shit because like, I, I know I'm, I'm horrible, but he would always say, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Like he just kept on saying it and, you know, he never gave me any specific instruction on how to be better. He just kept saying what I think every first year teacher needs to hear. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Um, I thought he was one of the best. I, I still, you know, now, now 23 years after, I still don't know whether I can go a day without thinking about Dr. Jones um, simply because like you just, in a time when everyone sees themselves as a warrior, he was seeing himself as, as a guardian. Um, and it was just so inspiring uh, to be able to, you, you came to work with purpose. And we talk about how when you're under bad leadership, how debilitating it is. If you actually get a leader that gives you the space to do really, to do what you need to do, it's liberating because you feel someone has taken a chance on you. And you don't want to let them down. Um, and so, like, I, you know, and I still suck as a teacher, but I really sucked back then. Um, but I felt that, like, okay, this guy believes in me, so I don't want to let him down. And that that is what inspires teachers to carry on, right? I, I truly do believe that, um, you know, and, and we've lost that. I'm oh. sorry, go ahead. I would never have even gone back to get my master's and become a teacher if if my supervisor and teachers I worked for weren't so encouraging about me when I was in the oh, yeah. classroom. They're like, you should really go into teaching. Yeah. You've got a knack for it. And I was like, really? I don't know if I do. I feel like I'm floundering here. But I give a shit. I feel like a lot of right. people don't. And I, I knew they that if students weren't learning it, it wasn't their fault. I just needed to change what I was doing. 
Correct. Correct. And I think it's easy to blame. I think it's easy to lay the blame on kids. Um, I think if you're somewhat, if you have somewhat of a capacity to do this, you take a lot on emotionally and spiritually. And in some cases, psychologically, you take a lot of baggage, a lot of hurt, a lot of trauma. And I think that's where um, a really powerful leader is going to recognize that. The test of any good leader or supervisor is that obviously there will be complaints and they're not going to be perfect. But if the prospect of them leaving causes you more heartache and more fear uh, than anything else, I think that's probably a really good test of somebody who has been effective in that role. Um, if it turns out that when they leave, you are just absolutely elated and you can't conceive of anything wrong, then definitely I think it's something that um, I think it's definitely something that you, you kind of want to move on from. And I do think that um, you kind of you kind of recognize that maybe it's not perfect, but if it gives you the space to kind of do what it is that you want to do or you need to do or that you can do, maybe that's all you can ask for. Um, you know, I think the real challenge is when we have leaders that for no reason other than ego, personal fulfillment, you know, professional stepping stone, those kinds of leaders we have to be rid of. So I think it's like, you're never going to get a really good one. You just hope that you don't get a really bad one. <laughs> like, I think that's the standard. And it's, it's terrible to say that that's the standard of educational leadership, but like, that's the standard of educational leadership that, you know, if, if you're able to say, look, man, as bad as she was, it could be worse. And at least we can, at least this is a known demon. You've got a decent leader that that's I, and, and I, 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 I wish I could say that my experience has taught me that, you know, it, it can be other, it's really not. Sure. <laughs> it's, either they give, it's either they give you the space and you're able to live or you just can't wait for them to leave because they are a detriment uh, to, to like children. And, and the book has become more of a tool of oppression than anything else. Um, if the book was like something liberating, okay, that's one thing, but the book has become so much of a tool of silencing and excluding and, and really just almost standardizing what is the most individualized process possible. So if you have someone that's willing to throw that book out occasionally or repeatedly, you got to own that. Like, that's a really good thing because too many leaders are coming in and all they know is the book. And they expect you to run with not just the book, but the book that they're pushing at that moment. And that book ends up changing over like, you know, the course of a year. Like you'll start off in the, in the fall with this book and then they'll come in in winter and say, now we're gonna throw that out and do this book. Um, and they'll seem to exercise it with such great tenacity and fidelity until the next book shows up. And that's when you just know that you're in a real dud of a, of a leader. That's true. That's really a sign of not having any vision. And just None. clinging to a safety blanket. It's cowardice. It's, it's, it's just awful. And I fear that we have more entering leadership that just follows that path of cowardice. Um, and it's terrible. It just, you have to really have such a strong vision and something that's driving you so much that it doesn't take a debilitating toll on you. And, and it's really rough to ask teachers um, to do that. And I think part of the reason why so many just fall by the wayside is because um, educational leadership that is rooted in being visionless or cowardice ends up having a debilitating toll on everyone but that leader. Like, they're cool with it. But I think everyone else, it really just, um, it, it exacts a toll because you truly hate where you work, you hate what you do, and you end up hating yourself because you feel on some level like you're a party to this hypocrisy. And that's not what you signed up for in the first place. Um, and so I, I, I don't, you know, 
I, I can't I can't under I, I can't overstate how important it is to just be able to say like as bad as X is, you know, it could be worse or it's not as bad as we think. Um, I can't I can't stress that enough because man, that that's just that's awful. And it's so weird. Oh no, it's so weird to say. I don't know whether teachers would agree with it, but on some level, teachers are. <laughs> let's be honest, we're battered wives. Like, let's just put it out there, right? Um, we're abused by the kids. We're abused by the system. We're abused by a social view of teachers. Oh, you get summers off. It's not a big deal. Anyone could do this. We're abused by the parents. We're abused by, um, we're, we're abused by, by bureaucrats who think that you could privatize our public education and get the same responses. So like, we're just battered wives all over. Um, we're like, we're one call away for, we're, we're one call away from a domestic violence hotline. If anyone actually reaches out to us and says, Hey, you're doing a good job. That's like a life raft. Like we, we cling to that. And I know that that's not very popular to say. And I know that teachers would say, well, I'm not like that. I don't need that validation. But I do believe that if you take this seriously, you do need that validation, right? Because you are the pin cushion for everyone else. You're the doormat, right? Think about it in the most blunt way possible. We're not allowed to have a bad day. You can have a bad day. The parents can have a shitty day. Your, your supervisor can have a really bad day. But you're not allowed to have a bad day. Because if you have a bad day, you're going to spend weeks trying to fix that if you can. Oh, yeah. So you're walking on a razor's edge every single minute for someone to actually say, hey, I think you're doing awesome or good job or even something like, you know, that lesson didn't work, but I love how you're, you're I love how you're fighting through. We hold on to that. Um, and I, I think that there is an affect of the leadership that we're losing. And I just don't, I don't know why. Um, the cynic in me just thinks it's because we've embraced a corporatizing model of education. So even our, our structures are corporate. Um, but I tend to think it's something more. Um, I, I tend to think that we have gotten so institutionalized by education that we don't even see, we see the parts of it as just cogs and widgets of a system, we don't really see them as individual human moving parts that have stories, that have narratives. Um, and, and on some level, I think that you could get a lot more out of people by just saying, I see you and you are seen. I hear you and you are heard. Um, we're not getting that in teaching. And I, I think, I actually do believe that this has trickle down effect, right? Because we're not getting it from our from our leadership. We're not able then to give it to our kids. Our kids are not able to give it to one another. So you kind of see how the results of a world of a setting without empathy have really deleterious impacts uh, across the board. Oh my God, why are they bullying one another? Um, well, why wouldn't they, right? Like we should be, we're the last people to talk about bullying with children because we're either bullying colleagues or administrators are bullying us. Like who's going to be the buffer to stop this, to model what can be? Oh my God, they're, they're, they're shouting racist comments to one another. They're posting racist memes online. Well, you know, I mean, obviously that comes from a lack of empathy. And are you shocked that we don't have empathy? So I think on some level, we've lost the idea that educational leadership is not about a seat or a title or an office or even having a doctor in front of your name. Educational leadership is having the vision to be able to bring what you want in your building and in your students, in your children, through your teachers. And, and, and I, I, I've always believed uh, there's some, if the head is rotten, the fish stinks kind of deal. If, if your leader is out of whack, your building is, your building, it, you can, you can have your buffer as much as you want, but the building is going to be corroded. Like you got to accept that. 
oh, the best you can do is say that the building is on fire, but my room is okay. <laughs> that's it. Um, and that's fine, I think, but it's very tough for a younger teacher to have to endure that, right? Like, and I think that's where, to some extent, you are, right? Like, I could sh shut my door and I could just do this and go home, but like, that's not, that's not sustainable over a period of time. So one of the one of the questionings where I think you are is what am I going to do to take what I'm developing and scale that out so that on some structural level I can see myself reflected in it because it's very very difficult I think to be able to say like I do this and I love this and I believe this but I don't see it anywhere except my room Right. Like, like, you know, I don't we, we make this argument all the time when children don't envision themselves in what we do, when children are not placed in the center of what we do, when they don't see themselves, how are they going to respond? And so, like, when we don't see ourselves, like you, you sit at a staff meeting and you're like, the structures and systems that are in place are so not reflective of me. How does that how do you get inspiration from that? Like, how do you? say oh i'm totally inspired now i don't know whether you can be because it just kills me the idea of spending so much time killing myself day after day after day to give these kids everything i possibly can and then have them go on to just i know that it's like it's making a difference but the thought of them like going on to another situation where somebody doesn't care that much and it kind of collapses it just kills me that idea yeah, no, and and that is real. That is real. Um, I full disclosure, you're 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 preaching to the choir, friend. Um, it's it's so difficult. Uh, the only thing that you can do, I think, is continue to profess your loyalty, your support, uh, that you will be there. Uh, the line that I've been using with kids over the years, <clears throat> you know, now that you're going on, um, I will continue to be the custodian of your shrine of greatness that's here and no matter where you go you can always come back uh you can always come back home you won't be the same person but this place will be the same and and i'm going to be the same i'm going to remind you of how far you've come and how far you can go uh, um that puts a very big burden on on the teacher right because essentially you're saying to them you're not going anywhere right so that's the first thing in a setting in which so many people are moving about and 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 just malleable you're going to have to be permanent in a state of impermanence the second thing that it does is it constantly reminds you of the job that you serve of the job that you do and the role that you 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 represent you know the the function you serve and i i think it's extremely important on some level to, to embody that because that's all you really have you're absolutely right you know um High school is going. High school is going to do terrible, terrible things. Like we can barely get middle school to reflect what we believe. What the hell is high school going to be like? Like that's you know, and that's just a cesspool in general. Um, you know, but I I I think that this is where we have to, in some respects, remind students. Um, you need to reach out now more than ever, right? One of the things that you're very you know, you're very passionate about is how am I going to get you to be an advocate for yourself? Well, one way you got to be an advocate for yourself is you got to reach out when you feel that the world around you is making you into someone you don't want to be. And that's a very difficult psychological lesson for a student to gain, but it's needed. It builds resilience, it builds grit, but more than anything else, it builds the capacity to look at the world and make a call that you're not going to be like it. And part of the way that they're not going to be like it is, I, and I do believe this, they contact you, they come back, they communicate with you, they, they do Zoom calls, they, they visit the room, they, they connect with a part of who they were so that the person that they are now can be reminded of who they once were and maybe bring a fraction of that into where they are now. 
that's extremely important. That is, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're now wandering into a realm that's beyond education. You're wandering into psychology, right? So like, um, I get married and I live with this person and I feel that the relationship is changing me, but because it's ubiquitous and I'm married, I don't, I don't know how to stop this train. Well, one way you have to stop it is you have to reconnect with who you once were before. And you have to look at who you were before and who you are now. Are you happier now than you were then? I hate to be like Ronald Reagan, but you kind of have to do that. You know, you kind of have to look at, you know, who are you? Who were you? Who are you going to be? And so we're kind of offering ourselves that to students because the other option is, okay, well, you go on your way. It is not teleological. It is not just one straight highway. Um, the brain is a parallel processor. It's living in the present, but it is thinking about the past. It is thinking about the future. It's thinking about the conditional. We have to get kids to kind of embrace the idea that you might need to reach back in order to move forward. Um, you know, the past isn't dead. In fact, it's not even past, right? I mean, the, Faulkner's line rings very true. Um, you know, you may have moved on from this classroom, but you are going to have to, you are going to encounter situations where you're going to be with seven horrible teachers and you're going to literally hate the existence that you live. That's not who you are now, but that might be who you'll become later. How do you offset that? You have to reconnect with who you once were. And so I, I think it's a very, I mean, I think one way to cope with that idea of I'm so terrified as to what the future might be is you, you kind of have to just say, okay, um, I may be terrified of what the future is going to be for them, but how do I get them to embrace coming back? How do I get them to embrace the idea that um, you can come back home, right? Like, you know, that this is the world in which we live is cruel and cynical and cold, but there can be a little pocket of warmth. Obviously, if, if they haven't connected with us, then this is a moot point, right? <laughs> On some level, we have failed them, they have failed us. And, you know, we're hopeful that the cycle of failure is stopped elsewhere. And we have to be honest, right? I, we want to connect with every single kid. That's my goal, right? I got 115. I want 115 to come back. For some, the connection didn't bite. For some, the light bulb didn't turn on. Some weren't ready. You know, I mean, it's, it's the parable that Jesus gives, right? Some farmers planting seeds, some seed falls on, uh, fall, some seed falls on rock, um, and is melted by the sun. Some seed is fallen on the ground and eaten by birds. Some seed though lands in the soil and out of it grows an orchard, right? Like the reality is some seed just didn't flourish. We planted it. We did the same thing that we did with everything else, but in some parts of the garden, the growth is better than others, right? Just, we don't know. So obviously, if they did not make that connection, then this, you know, you hope that they find it somewhere. But for those that did make that connection, we we have to remind them that um, the forest that you're entering is is dark and it's scary and it's obscure. Um, you will navigate it. You will hack it away. You will cut through and forge a path. But in the event that you get lost, you always know that you can reach out. You You do have agency. You can do something um, because it's very, very scary. We have a tendency to uh, over-structuralize everything, right? We, we look at the structures and the systems that are in place and they become oppressive and overwhelming because they, they are. But we forget that people, even on the smallest level, have some agency. They have to have some agency to be able to impact a small fraction of change. Not, not seismic, right? This is a marathon. It, you know, it's not a sprint. It, it took centuries to develop. It's going to take as long, if not more, to dismantle. But you do have some agency in, 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 in overturning it. And part of that agency is, I'm going to reach out to Ms. Bell. You know, hey, I'm struggling. You know, I just, I just, or it could even be, it would be great if they said I'm struggling. They might be reaching out to say, I'm just saying, hey, and you have to know, okay, um, is there something going on? You know, I, 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 I come back to our, you know, I come back to the Julian student that killed herself, right? Like on some level, there was never any connection 
with the place that she supposedly was happy in, right? Like that's our job, I think on some level to remind them that no matter where they go or what, what they encounter, they have developed a niche that no one else can take away. And that can be very, very powerful and inspiring in dealing with reality that's terrifying, right? You don't have to go through it alone. As long as I'm here, we'll walk in twos. And I think it's extremely, I mean, that might be one way to cope with the idea of like, I'm terrified of what they're going to face in the future. Hell, I think everyone is. I mean, you know, I send these kids off to high school and like, I, that place is just godforsaken. I don't know how many make it out of there, <laughs> but I have to be able to say like, they have to reach out, right? Mm -hmm. At some point I'll do whatever, but once June 6th rolls around, I can't, I just can't, right? I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I am, I'm physically and structurally limited in what I can do. But if you take that step back, there's no telling how many, how much support you're going to get from, but you got to do it. And that's an important lesson because I, I don't think it's fair to send these kids out into the world, into a, a cruel and sadistic world to say, uh, okay, structures and systems will be in place to always love and care for you. They can be, but you're going to have to do some work on that level. I, I just, I, you know, I, I, I wish it were different. I totally wish I could be sending them off to a comforting cradle, like, you know, like Moses being a baby in a basket in the river, like, but I just can't, you know, it's just, it's not, it's not realistic. That's where I think they have to kind of say, um, who was I? You know, and, 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 and can I reconnect with that if only for a moment? You'll find that if, 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 you're, if you're able to create that setting and kids do reconnect, you know, look at what is happening right here, right? I mean, you know, that, that is a fact. And that, that was like, you know, 20 some odd years after the fact. But that is where, that, that is where hope has to lie because there's really nothing else, right? The, the idea is that you provided a space to humanize the story of their othering and their exclusion and their their aloneness you provided a setting where they did not feel that so much and they're going to keep feeling that not they're going to keep feeling those nonsensical horrible feelings in the future but you're going to create that zone where they can come back and if only for a moment be alleviated of the horrible burden that it is to be that and so i think that that's kind of that's that's one approach you take. I, I don't know of another one, which is again, you know, our leadership is not looking at it in that vein. Our leadership, I believe, you know, bad leaders are like, you're done. Once you leave, the institution has no connection with you. <laughs> I think moral or ethical leadership is that you will always be our ward. You will always be our child you can always come back to your school. Um, I know that I haven't been seeing a lot of that message being communicated to our students. And I think it's a worthy message. Yes, obviously they're ready to go. They're in eighth grade. They're ready to go. They're, they're ready to move on to high school. But we need to have the moral courage and the ethical courage to be able to say, you will always be ready to go, but you can always come back home. You know? Um, you know, one of the one of the hardest things I think for for parents that have that have daughters, right, is when their daughter gets married, they they automatically leave the home uh, and they start their own life. Um, but no worthy parent is ever going to send out their daughter and say, you can never come back home because parents know. And I think mothers probably know more than fathers. Mothers know that when that girl leaves, she's going to be changed. And you always want to remind them that if you are going to be changed, you can always come back to visit the person you once were. In some respects, we, we should be, we might, we stand to benefit something perhaps by taking that mentality and applying it to our classroom. Like, I know you're going to go. I know you're going to leave. And you may or may not come back, but you will always be able to come back. And that provides some level of courage. Um, it, it, it provides some level of comfort. Um, because 
Go ahead. Sorry. I think it provides something tangible or concrete for them to hold on to with regards to self-advocacy. Self-advocacy self-advocacy has been one of those words too that has been thrown around so much it's kind of lost its meaning. And I think we are constantly hard on our kids. I know it's certainly in my program, but even as a student, I felt this. We're so hard on the kids about you've got to be self-advocates. You've got to be self-advocates without really showing them how to do that or or modeling what that looks like. Right. Right. What does, I mean, it's a great word, but like, how do you do that? And I think being able, one step of being able or one way to be able to do that is by clearly telling them uh, one way you can do this is always know you can, you can reach out. You are not alone. Right. And, and, but to do that, right. (laughs) Means that we have to, we have to, we have to walk the walk on that one. You can't tell a child, I'm going to be here for you and then just cold abandon them. Oh, you're not, you're not one of my students anymore, or it doesn't, you know, you, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's hard because like now, now you get into the idea, well, I'm not supposed to be, they didn't come from my womb. They're not my child. I, I don't have to do that. And, and I, I don't know. Right. I mean, I have no fucking answers. Right? I, I have no response to that, but on some level, and that's where I think that, you know, we play with fire on some level. We think this is a very surface job, but it's not. This is, there's very, very, probably you get to maybe some competition when you're looking at um, people of religious faith, like the priesthood or imams or monsignors or, or rabbis. But let's be honest, there there really is no more uh, emotional job or intimate job than this. This is it. Like, you know, this, and it's as old as time itself. It's very primal. So you can't, you can't, it's very difficult with this job to apply a nine to five mentality. Mm-hmm. You can't say, well, I'm in at nine, I do my job, and I'm going to be done by 3.30, and that's it. You, you don't. You, what do you do when you get the email from the child or the message from the child? You know, I'm going to hurt myself, right? Like I have, I have the razor and I just wanted to say bye to you. Like, you know, where is, where's your punch out card then? Where are, where can you turn off the computer then? I really want to go down on the idea that like, okay. It was after hours. I don't respond to emails outside of work. And then you find out that some kid emailed you at nine o'clock and they're dead the next day. Like that's what, if that's like, if you're, if you can be comforted with the idea that I did my job and that's it. Okay. Like, okay. I can't. Um, but if, if a teacher can, so be it. That's why I think, you know, you, we play with fire when we, when we say I'm a teacher. If you really are saying that, you got to take everything that comes with it. And what comes with it is that you have some level of ethical responsibility for these young people. If they acknowledge it, fine. If they don't, you still do. Mm-hmm. That's my student, right? And, and one of the things that I've always been, I've always told kids um, at the end of the year, I mean, obviously uprooted this year, but you know, I always, the last thing I say to them is that you will always be my student, that no matter where you go or what you do, um, I will always have to be here for you. Right. Like, you know, even if you, even if you and I didn't get along, even if you didn't, even if I, I was repulsed by you and you were more repulsed by me, our paths, our paths crossed for a year. Our lives intercepted. I can't forget that. I may want to, but I can't. That's imprinted on me. And so in acknowledging that imprint, in acknowledging that, that in, in acknowledging the mark that was made, you need to know that you can always come back here and I will always receive you. Um, some teachers are not cool with that. Right. It's interesting too, like you don't even know what seeds you've been planted. And some kids, I mean, I remember Absolutely. student teaching. I was tearing out my hair with this one kid who came to us. I'm like, 
I don't think I'm reaching him. I'm doing everything I possibly can. I felt so defeated at the end. And then he wrote me the nicest letter. And then he ended up becoming my student when I became a teacher as well. And we just got along great. And sometimes he'd have trouble with other teachers, but I was able to connect with them and find a point of entry. And I'm like, I had no idea because I was just feeling like a failure with this kid. Yes. So sometimes it's like because they're not going to be able to verbalize it or express it, but doesn't mean you didn't reach them. You can't stop life. You, you can't stop life. You cannot stop the organic growth of what is already there. You don't know. We never do. I think one of the one of the problems with one of the many problems with where we are is we are so reliant on like testing data and like the idea of what growth looks like. Um, you know, oh they 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 move from from ninety two percent to ninety eight percent or they move from ten percent to twenty two percent. They made growth those numbers never indicate the level of real growth that they've experienced. You'll never know that because that growth is not going to conveniently fit from August 19th to June 6th. It just doesn't work that way. You don't know. You don't know until 20 years after the fact sometimes. And you have to live with that. In a setting in which everything has to be data-driven, one of the beauties of this profession and one of the maddening aspects of this profession is that some parts of it are never going to be data driven. Right. Data would have told us again, data would have told us that our kid from Julian ended eighth grade, having grown, having accomplished everything, having exceeded every benchmark. And we never realized that she didn't feel that she didn't feel that she grew. So one night in July, she climbs the overpass and kills herself. We just, I mean, that's, that's where we are. And in order for this to work, we, I think we have to give up a little bit of our, of our comfort of certainty and embrace the fact that we just may never know. I hope, I, I, I really hope, and I try, but I have to live with the fact that I just don't know. And, and that's probably where, you know, it helps to have some level of spiritual grounding, not to get too heavy, but I mean, this conversation is already there. So what the hell? It, it helps to have some level of spiritual grounding. It helps to have some tethering to faith. It is very, very difficult to sustain in this profession without some grounding outside of it, whatever that grounding is. Um, it, and it's getting harder and harder. I, I just, you know, um, I I see teachers that drop out after like five or six years that um, that could have been just phenomenal. Like their growth, their growth. Oh, I I'm gonna be saying I've already I'm saying bye to one of them right now. She she started off in our building uh, seven years ago. She was just abject, challenged and horrible and afraid. But she has grown to a, just a giant. But it got to her and she's leaving and she's done. And, you know, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. Um, I think, I think her plans to just go for a year and, you know, she's going to move to Missouri and, and settle in there with, uh, with her intended. And she's not going to teach for that first year. Um, I hope she goes back to the classroom, but I also know that, you know, I've seen, I've seen that, that fire that was in her belly just, get con considerably doused and there's not there was nothing I could do about it um you know and and that's because this profession just if you if you don't have that grounding um and you 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 are rightfully looking for external support you're not going to get it hmm. you just won't it's that's a, what I it's feel a terrible thing that these these people who are teachers with great potential or potential teachers who could be really great are going to be scared away or burnt out by the profession and by the system. And the ones yeah. who are mediocre or bad are the ones that are going to remain. Those will be, those, those will be raised because there's really nothing else. Right. You know, I mean, because to do this well, you got to take it in such, you, you got to take it 
with such ferocity, with such with such a ferocious and tenacious attitude. Um, if you don't have the if you don't have something that grounds you to continue doing that, this one takes a lot out of you. This one just it, it's rough. And and I do think that there is a there is a cause for concern um, because I'm not sure we're developing the structures and the systems to allow good struggling teachers to know that it's okay to be good and to struggle. That this profession, the the people that are around us right now may not immediately validate um greatness in in our profession. And that is okay because that that is a temporary blip in something larger. You know, I, I've always one of the things that I do think that I have been so fortunate in possessing is the ability to look at people and say to them, people that don't mirror what I believe the profession should be, people that I, I see are actively degrading the profession. I've always been able to look at them and say, I'm going to outlast you. Hmm. You're temporary. You're the unreal. And I'm going to outlast you. And taking that mentality is very, very difficult, especially when you see the mediocre and the bad being valorized and the good being negated. It's really hard to say that, but I do think that the essence of the profession rewards righteousness and honor. Because if you go back to the source of this profession, oceans of time ago, it would, there were only good teachers. Because not everyone did this. You only, you only took the studies of the teacher because they were good. The guru was someone that you sat at their feet and learned from. In its origins, this profession has always validated um, honor and decency. Right now, <laughs> we're in a setting in which, you know, it is not honorable. It is dishonorable. It is not decent. It is indecent. Um, we're struggling. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Part of it is, as a society, we've moved away from the character ethic and living with values and principles and moved towards the personality ethic, where all of a sudden mm. it's just about getting more power, getting more money, getting more control, winning as many yeah. friends as possible, influencing as many people as possible, just yeah. making this shiny little box and it's become more and more shallow. There's, there's definitely become a branding element that has become critical in teaching now. You have to brand everything. Um, but I go back to the idea that if you are, if you are driven in this enough, Branding and everything, that's the unreal. We have to have the fortitude and strength to be able to look at that and say, I'm going to outlast that. I don't know how, and I don't know like what it's going to look like exactly, but I'm going to outlast you. I'm going to outlast what you represent. And in the end, you will tire because I'm not going to surrender what it is that I do. I'm not going to surrender the hold on what I know to be good and true and beautiful. I'm not going to surrender that. So I'm going to outlast you. And I just got to wait. I just got to wait you out. I don't have to wait out the system. I have to wait you out. <laughs> and I think that if we, if, if we're able to do that, um, you know, it, eventually the morning does come. The night is long and it is dark, but the morning does come. And we, this profession has always been rooted in the idea of light, revelation, understanding. Um, unlike, unlike business or, um, you know, law, which, whose roots might have been dubious to begin with in terms of self-interest and this has always been about selflessness first. You know, the, 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 the greatest of teachers never branded anything. Erasmus never copyrighted 
his lessons on teachers pay teachers. Like, it just never, never happened. Um, he did it because it was an extension of him. When St. Augustine teaches, he does it because it's an extension of what is there. There's nothing more intimate than this profession if done right. Um, and so I, I think you have to kind of embrace the idea that eventually the honor and dignity of the profession that has always been a part of it is going to be revealed. And you're going to have to be on that side because that is where you get, unless of course you are using this as a means to an end. If you are, then so be it. But that's where we have to say, I'm going to outlast you. You're going to eventually move on because you lack the capacity to understand what's real and permanent. So I just need to see you through. And it's very difficult to say, but I don't know any other way to go because there's so much of like this unreal crap. I think it's easier to talk about fluffy items and trivial items than it is to talk about something more real. I, I, when you talk about the shiny box, it's much, it's much easier to talk about the distractions than it is to talk about like, why am I here? Because when we ask those profound questions, I think that we end up, it's scary because we are on our own. Have, again, you have to have a long-term understanding of why you're doing what you're doing and what that actually looks like. And that's, you know, <laughs> that's rough. That, that's just not easy. So it's easier to talk about scheduling it's easier to talk about um, content. It's easier to talk about uh, new strategies. And those are important, uh, you know, but those take the place, that chatter takes the place of the real profound silence that we're confronted with when we have to ask ourselves, why do we do what we do? So that's why I think it's easier to talk about that because um, we, we like to cloud, we, we like to crowd ourselves and cloud ourselves with trivialities, superficiality, gossip, because it's much easier to talk about that than actually talk about something structural and significant, such as why am I here? What is it that I'm doing? Um, how do I, how do I craft a vision that's going to reflect what it is that represents me? Because when you do that, there is no, there is no book. There is not, there's only silence. You're going into a deep part of yourself that terrifies people. It, it's much easier to talk about branding than it is to do that. It's horrifying. And so I, I just, I think that part of the reason why, um, you know, people are afraid those seeds take time to grow and people are afraid of that. And so I think it's extremely, uh, you know, I, I think it, the sooner you do it, the better, but I'm also mindful of the fact that like, you know, this is the most important thing you will think about in the profession. And that's terrifying. <laughs> uh, that, 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 that freaks people out. I mean, you know, I'm I'm fairly confident that, you know, just merely doing this is something that would terrify most teachers, mm. you know, and, and maybe that's part of the reason why our leadership is, is the way it is, right? Like they haven't want to have those discussions with themselves. So they're not going to teach us to have those discussions with ourselves. And thus we don't, we teach the children not to have those discussions with themselves. So like, you can kind of see how this trickle down effect is, 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 is truly disastrous, right? I mean, you know, because in the end, <laughs> you know, you have, you have leadership. Well, we want kids to be um, critical thinkers and inquiry-based, yet we don't want to deal with that ourselves. Like, that's not something you just throw out there. That's not, it's, it's the advocacy thing. You know, I mean, make them advocate. They should be self-advocates. Yeah, that's not something you just throw out there. To do that requires an embrace and a modeling of it, as you, as you rightly pointed out so in depth that they can see what this actually looks like in real life. But if no one is willing to do it, how the hell is it going to get done? Which is part of the reason why maybe it's always been there. People have always been good at using this profession as a stage of hypocrisy. Just do what I say. Don't worry about what I do. And, and like, 
that has to be, we have to, the authenticity in this profession has to be returned. And the only way it's going to come back is if people are going to be authentic enough to be able to say like, you know, this is what I believe. This is what I do. And, and, you know, when you look at me, you should be seeing, uh, you know, the, 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 the water reflecting the moon, right? Like that, that, that's what it should be. There is no duplicity. And um, I think it comes back to the word vulnerability that you brought up uh, the last time we talked. And actually, yesterday yeah. I serendipitously found Brene Brown's TED Talk on vulnerability, and then I watched her Netflix special as well. Yeah. But she was saying it takes the courage. It's not just disclosing information. It takes the courage to show up and show who you are. And that's yeah. the only way that you're going to be able to get that reciprocated from somebody else. I, I buy that. I totally accept that. Um, You know, it's hard when it's hard when we have leadership that speaks of strength in such a narrow way and in such a caricature way. But strength is that that ability to to embrace your vulnerability and to own it. And to show that you aren't ruined because of it, um, you know. And I just, I have not, you know, I, 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 Dr. Jones, my first principal, was very, very strong, but he was open about the idea that, like, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I hope this works. Uh, you know, I'm scared. Yeah. That was that was really influential to me, and I, I don't know. If it was, I didn't realize at the time how influential it was, but it, it, again, it planted those seeds uh, to better understand the nuances and the dimensions of them. That strength and leadership doesn't necessarily have to come with totalizing certainty, and um, that you don't have to be a warrior; you could be a guardian or a servant-first leadership mentality can actually be quite beneficial to a great many people. Um, and I, I just. You know, those those aren't again. If if those lessons are not being embraced by leadership, it it's putting an extra demand on teachers to embody that themselves. You were so right that it's a trickle down effect, and I also think we see it's a trickle out effect. Like it's it's not just through the education system; it's the political yeah. system. It's yeah. so much in our society. Betsy DeVos should scare us as the Secretary of Education. Because she subscribes not not because she favors privatization or she's for profit education or she's rolling back protections for LGBTQ. Obviously, those are very dis- disconcerting. But Bessie DeVos should scare us as the Secretary of Education because her paradigm for success and strength is extremely narrow. She refuses to acknowledge the vulnerability that is implicit in this process. That's why she should be scared. Or she, we, that's why we should be wary of her. Um, whenever our political leadership does not have the courage to embrace hurt and sadness and vulnerability and pain, um, you know, I, I just, and again, I, you bring up the political end, so, so you know, I'll bite. I am fully cognizant of the fact, right, that um, Joe Biden is going to have a great deal of limitations. I'm not, I'm not saying that he's the next coming of King Arthur in any way, nor am I saying he's going to be like FDR. Not. Um, but the idea, when you look at who do you want, like if, if we have to deal with with death or pain, or uncertainty, and hurt, I think the issue is very, very simple. Who do you want leading you in that moment, right? Like, and again, not to get excessively political, but the fact of the matter is, Joe Biden is going to say, you know, you've lost someone dear to you. Here's my cell number. Let me help you. You know, talk, I can talk you through it or I can express, I can express to you what I felt and how I, how it hurt when I lost my wife and my child. And, 
right? Like to a nation that's looking at over 120,000 COVID deaths. Compare that with with what you've got in the White House and what Trump's response. Again, part of Trump's view of strength is that you can't show any vulnerability. You know, if you get hit, you got to hit back harder. Uh, you never, ex- you never accept, pl- uh, you never accept failure. You never accept, uh, you, you never accept loss. And, and th- there is something valuable to that, I suppose. But the fact of the matter is, if there are so many more people that are hurting right now than we can count. Um, you know, certainly in the last four years. There is a there is a there is a wound on the American culture right now, and it's just and there needs to be some band aid or some topical ointment. Something has to be given to it because it's just stinging. It it it's just it's hurting. Somebody who can to overcome that hurt is to embrace the vulnerability in it, and I think just on that level. Um, I think you'd have to say that that Biden embodies the values that can help bring complexity to something that is not simple. And that what Trump does is he he tries to enforce simplicity on something that's complex. Um, And again, you know, politics aside, you bring up the fact that what we're seeing in education is is a reflection of an ethical, a moral, uh, a spiritual lack of grounding, our politics reflects that, you know? And, and, and I think that's, that's where, um, you know, we as teachers have a unique perspective because we're always talking about um, self-improvement. We're always talking about how do you become better? How do you become a better thinker, a better, uh, a more more self-reliant person? How do you develop these? Like, that's what we do every day. And so I, I kind of think that part of that is, is it plays into our wheelhouse by saying, how do we deal with vulnerabilities? How do we deal with hurt? You know, I just, no other profession has to do that, but we do. And part of the reason why we do is because these young, these, these little people are hurting and they don't know what that's like, right? So like, how do you how do you tell some kid who's hurting um, a simplistic answer? I, I always you know, if, and it's always it, for me it always happens at the worst time. It will be like during a fire drill or something, and some kid will say, "Mr. Can, can I talk to you? I really need someone to talk to." And I'm like, "Now, <laughs> like you couldn't pick a shittier moment, like because at that moment I got to get everyone out." And I'm like, "But I have, you know, I'm like, okay." <laughs> let me get my numbers down and then yes, you and I will talk, right? But you don't, you, that vulnerability, you can't sim- simplify it away. Oh, we don't need to talk. You're fine. Rub some dirt on it. Because I don't want to live with the guilt and the hurt that that kid went into a hospital because they felt there was nobody there. And so if there is any hope in all this, I do think it lies in the fact that our profession is uniquely positioned to tell people, tell children to embrace complexity, to embrace vulnerability, to actually own it. Because it not only works, it makes sense for them. It, it is logical. Oh, that's why I am hurting. I've been trying to fix a square peg into a circle hole. I get it. I, once you see that there's something bigger, it actually allows you, I mean, if there is any hope in our profession, I think it lies there, um, that that we have a unique audience, that we have an audience that is uniquely positioned to embrace the idea that vulnerability is okay. Complexity is, the, is, is how this is going to be. And it may get dark, and it's going to hurt, but the morning will come. We do have to rely on that. And I think that's kind of important to keep in mind. Can I ask you one more question? Go ahead. How do you stay grounded? I think one way is there has to be some type of practice of differentiating the real from the unreal. And when things are real, they go back to a source that is larger than us. They go back to something that's permanent, 
something that's lasting. When things are unreal, they're temporary, they're trivial, they seem important. It's, one way I've described it is if you're, if you're having a nightmare in the middle of the night, it feels truly real. And at that moment, you feel like the walls are closing in. But then you wake up and you can't even remember it anymore. That's why the nightmare is unreal. Uh, for me, part of my grounding has come from the idea of being able to differentiate between the, between the real and the unreal um, and linking what I do to that real element. And I, I, I think that it's always, you know, even when I had you as a student, um, the things that I did then, I still do. It was not, it, at that stage in my career, I don't think it was really, I never defined it in terms of real and unreal, but I knew that like, I want to do this and I don't want to do that. I never had the language to put to it. I could never vocalize it, but I understood very clearly that what I want to do and this is who I want to be in the classroom and this is who I don't want to be. So I think part of that process of staying grounded is recognizing what is the difference between the real and the unreal, which is why when you craft your vision, when you start coming up with your digital portfolio, when you start talking about what's my, what are the things that I'm going to hold true to, you got to make sure that your vision doesn't encompass anything that's unreal. Because once it does, your vision is going to fall apart and you're going to fall apart pretty soon with it. So I think it's really important to kind of embrace that idea, discriminate, to differentiate between the real and the unreal. Um, for me personally, I think it's, it's come from a deep, a deep place of faith. Uh, I just, uh, I know, and obviously this year, you know, because of, because of COVID, uh, it didn't happen. But for me, I think, um, being able to go to India every summer is, is extremely important, uh, because you, you sort of see what insignificance really looks like. And I, I tend to think that, you know, we, we have this belief that somehow, um, all these little, all these, you know, what you call the, the fluffy things, right? Uh, all those fluffy things tend to matter. That's the unreal. If you really want to like recognize what the real is, um, you know, go, go to a place where you can stand on ground that's been there for 4,000 years, right? Go to a location where you know, you can, you're, you're, it's pretty clear that this mountain range has been in existence for 10,000 years, like the tectonic plates of it. Go link yourself to something like that. And you'll see like that teacher next door who they're pretty insignificant, <laughs> right? That, like that's, that's going to pass, you know? Um, and that in the end, all you really want to do is create the setting where you're a vessel that the real will pass through. I kind of think that's a way to be grounded. Um, you know, and I guess it does come back to that idea of being able to have the courage to look at something that you know doesn't represent, that represents the antithesis of what you do and say, I'm, I've put my stock on something that's going to outlast you. Um, it's really, really, really difficult to teach that to someone. Um, but for me, that's how like I'm able to function um, because I, I and it requires a lot of you know a lot of unpacking and untangling like every day, every morning, every night. You know, you're you're kind of parceling. You're you're you have this garden full of weeds, and you're just like pulling weeds left and right and you you want to kind of make sure as I'm pulling these weeds um I have this tree I have the roots of a tree that's been growing for like 200 years I got to keep those roots because that's real that's going to keep going but these weeds are not and so I'm sifting through that's part of the process how do you sift through how do you parcel through what is real and what is um unreal it's 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 not easy, um, and it's not work that people do, and it's it's not work that many people do, 
and it's not worth it quick. But if you do that, I think you 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 have a way to be grounded in a setting that could take away from it. Thank you so much. As always. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ferocious Teachers Podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or our tools and strategies by signing up for Fit to be Ferocious, a weekly newsletter that highlights our current conversations about education. Sign up at ferociousteachers.com. Get show notes from this episode at ferociousteachers.com slash podcast. Remember, change and transformation start from within.